0: And once said you have to struggle to stay alive and be of use as long as you can welcome to the 80th episode of saint dymphna's playbook the sdp if you want to be cool a production of the grexley podcast network my name is tommy i'm a cradle catholic a marriage and family therapist a husband and father of five boys four on earth and one in heaven love you luke and I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to remember that we have a purpose. God has us here in this time and this place for a reason. And we have to keep fighting the good fight to stay alive because we're worth it. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimpna's mention. First up, Andrea sent us a question that I think a lot of us have wondered about, so I thought we could start there. How do you find a therapeutic approach that might be good for you? Is there a site that goes over the major approaches, what they involve, and who they might benefit? I keep hearing about new modalities and don't know what might fit my personality or way of understanding the world. This is such an awesome question and an important one to consider because it'll help when you're looking for a therapist who might be a good fit for you or when you're looking to guide your current therapist into the approach that might benefit you the most. And keep in mind that while most therapists have a preferred orientation, they are typically well-versed in many different approaches and are totally happy to work with whatever approach may best connect with you. Starting with myself as an example, I'm not a super emotional, touchy feely kind of person. I'm sure you're all totally shocked. I'm much more (laughs) into trying to solve a problem, uh, into thinking things through, and into doing something to help me feel better. I also see the world and the way it works in more of a structured and analytic way rather than a social emotional way. And if I take all these things about myself and my personality into consideration, I find that a cognitive behavioral approach to therapy works best for me, one that breaks down the thoughts I'm experiencing and works through if they're rational or not, etc. That really works for me. A therapeutic approach that is more emotional, psychodynamic, for example, is less appealing to me. I'm less into sitting down and telling someone about how I feel and going back through my past than I am about attacking the current problem in a rational and structured manner. But the cool thing is that all of us are different. All of us see the world and understand ourselves in a slightly different way. And thus, all of us would find a different approach to therapy beneficial. And it's important to think this through because we won't benefit from a therapy that doesn't match up with who we are as a person. I'll share a quick personal story to show what I mean. When I was in grad school, we were required to go to therapy ourselves as a part of the curriculum. And I first got connected with this therapist who was a linguistics major and actually used that knowledge in the therapeutic process. She would listen to what I said and then would explore why I chose the particular words I chose and what the roots of those words were and their meaning and put a lot of importance into how we speak about ourselves and our situation and how the words that we choose relates to how we feel and how if we choose more accurate words will actually align our emotions with our current situations more. It was awesome. I loved it. I loved it so much. However, I had to switch to a different therapist to get a feel of what it would be like to meet with someone else. And then the next person I went to see was into hypnotherapy, rebirthing weekends, look it up if you don't know, you won't be disappointed, and things like that. And I hated it. I would actually come to fake solutions to my problems when I was in the fake calm state of hypnosis just to make the session move along and help her feel like she was doing something for me. But I completely hated it so now there are people listening who would probably have the opposite feelings regarding these two therapists really hate the first one and get nothing out of it and really appreciate the deeply emotional calm music kind of experience with the second one neither of us is wrong or right it's just that we have to be genuine to who we are if we're going to get the most out of therapy There are resources out there to walk you through this online from places like Psychology Today and others. It's totally worth looking up, but let's take a quick look at five main types that are out there to get you started, and we'll get some help from WebMD for the brief explanations. Psychodynamic therapy is based on the assumption that you are having emotional problems because of unresolved, generally unconscious conflicts, often stemming from childhood. The goal of this type of therapy is for you to understand and better manage these feelings by talking about the experiences. Psychodynamic therapy is done over a period of at least several months, although it can last longer, even years. Interpersonal therapy focuses on behaviors and interactions you have with family and friends. The goal of this therapy is to improve your communication skills and increase self-esteem during a short period of time cognitive behavioral therapy helps uh, people with mental illness identify and change inaccurate perceptions that they may have about themselves and the world around them. The therapist helps you establish new ways of thinking by directing attention to both the wrong and right, in quotes, assumption that you make about yourselves and others. Dialectical behavioral therapy, you might hear DBT, is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy used for high risk, tough to treat patients. The term dialectical comes from the idea that bringing together two opposites in therapy acceptance and change brings better results than either one alone dbt helps you change unhealthy behaviors such as lying and self-injury through keeping daily diaries individual and group therapy and phone coaching and then last there's a more general supportive therapy that coaches you on how to learn to manage your anxiety and unhelpful thoughts on your own and this approach helps to bolster your self-esteem On to the next topic, we hear a lot about how exercise is a great way to relieve stress and fight depression, but what if we're too anxious even to exercise? EurekaAlert.org has some news from a recent study. New research from McMaster University suggests the pandemic has created a paradox where mental health has become both a motivator for and a barrier to physical activity people want to be active to improve their mental health but find it difficult to exercise due to stress and anxiety say the researchers who surveyed more than 1600 subjects in an effort to understand how and why mental health physical activity and sedentary behavior have changed throughout the course of the pandemic even though exercise comes with the promise of reducing anxiety many respondents felt too anxious to exercise likewise although exercise reduces depression respondents who were more depressed were less motivated to get active what a shock right and lack of motivation is a symptom of depression. Respondents reported higher psychological stress and moderate levels of anxiety and depression triggered by the pandemic. At the same time, aerobic activity was down about 20 minutes per week. Strength training was down about 30 minutes per week and sedentary time was up about 30 minutes per day compared with six months prior to the pandemic. Those who reported the greatest declines in physical activity also experienced the worst mental health outcomes. The researchers reported while respondents who maintained their physical levels were faring much better mentally researchers also found economic disparities played a role particularly among younger adults so this result may seem rather obvious to some of us who live with anxiety but i think it's important to highlight because so often we're told that exercise is a good coping mechanism for anxiety and it is but what's discussed far less frequently is how our mental health can impact our abilities to access those coping mechanisms especially in times of stress like over the last year so let's cut each other some slack, cut ourselves some slack, and let's help our loved ones whenever we're able to. So each episode I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Julie. 1751 in France Julie was the sixth of seven children and by the age of seven she knew the catechism by heart and would gather friends from around the neighborhood so she could explain the faith to them she was so spiritually advanced that she was able to make her first communion and receive confirmation at the age of nine unheard of at the time and she took a private vow of chastity at 14 when she was 22 years old she experienced an event that would lead to her most likely going through PTSD an unknown person fired a pistol at her father And she went into a nervous shock that included paralysis of her lower limbs and soon uh, being confined to a bed for 30 years years she spent five hours each day in contemplative prayer while while stuck in this bed and spent the rest of her time making linens and laces for the local parish altar with this experience always close in her heart she would go on to be one of the founding members of the institute of the sisters of notre dame and spent her time teaching the faith to poor children founding 15 convents and touching the hearts of so many julie is an incredible example of someone who continued to find a way to live a spiritual life in the midst of symptoms of mental illness after a traumatic experience, and she's just a wonderful example for all of us as we try to find our own way in life. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, and we'll go with an awesome, powerful, short prayer that she wrote. Dear Lord, look upon me like the good thief, and I should be so lucky, full of peace. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness, it's time for Twitter Therapy. Father Anonymous gets us started. What resources do you know of that could be helpful for priests doing, uh, dealing with scrupulous penitents? I feel powerless over how to treat them, Help. How- helpfully, when uh, met with their arduous struggle to remember how many times they thought, said, or did, or suspected they did this or that, or things that are not sins as such, or the suspicion of not having confessed a sin before with sufficient detail, when I internally suspect they did confess it at least once before. If I find that stopping them in mid-share or even clarifying this or that is not really a sin seems to have no good effect. Let's start by joining in prayer together for everyone experiencing scrupulosity and for the good and holy priests like Father Anonymous who are trying their best to find ways to be able to help them. Our Father, who art in heaven, A blessing it is to know that you are out there, Father, caring so deeply about the souls you meet in confession that you want to learn more about how to help them when they're facing religious OCD. I also want to give you a little bit of relief by reminding you and everyone listening that you are not expected to be the therapist for the people that you meet. We all have a role to play in the lives of those around us, family member, friend, priest, etc. And while we want to help and we have a duty to help in our own way, we don't have to feel like we have to have all the answers. Instead, we can help in our own way and then try to connect those we care about to helping professionals who can take on that role. Okay, back to the question. When you say, I find that stopping them in mid-share, or even clarifying this or that is not really a sin seems to have no good effect, you are definitely on to something. Let's start by exploring what religious OCD is from the Center for Anxiety Disorders. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, OCD, is characterized by unwanted, intrusive thoughts and anxiety about something, those are obsessions, and the behaviors, which we call compulsions, that people who suffer from the condition use to relieve the anxiety. This particular anxiety disorder represents a very serious condition that often grips the victim's mind with fear and, in a very real way, controls their lives. In the case of religious OCD, also known as scrupulosity, the person is fixated on obsessions that are based in religion and or religious beliefs or around beliefs concerning morality people who experience this form of OCD suffer from obsessive religious doubts and fears, unwanted blasphemous thoughts and images, as well as compulsive religious rituals, reassurance seeking, and avoidance. Scrupulosity rituals can include such behaviors as compulsively praying, which can involve restarting the prayer if you get distracted while saying it and or repeating it if you didn't feel you were concentrating properly on the prayer or the meaning of the prayer asking others if you are behaving correctly or if you quote did the right thing or analyzing your behaviors throughout the day to be sure that you are acting appropriately reading or studying religious writing books and texts excessively questioning your motives in numerous situations and excessively apologizing to God and seeking forgiveness for your behavior. So as you can guess, those of us suffering with scrupulosity are constantly seeking reassurance, but because our intrusive thoughts are so intense and so pervasive, uh, we might not believe that the person giving us reassurance is telling us the truth. So we have to keep seeking, keep engaging in compulsive behaviors to calm our anxiety, and the cycle goes on and on. And in fact, giving our loved ones reassurance uh, might be the opposite of what they need from us so if we have a thought that pops into our mind and and then we make a connection that we need to seek reassurance in order to help ourselves feel better it actually gives the thought power like this thought is so important that i had to do something to fight it and and when we give the thought power it tends to come back more intensely and more often so our compulsive behaviors increase in response to it and it, it starts to get out of hand Instead, the preferred treatment for religious OCD and all OCD really is exposure and response prevention, where we expose ourselves to the thought that brings us anxiety and then prevent ourselves from the compulsive behaviors, including seeking reassurance, and wait for the anxiety to naturally go down. It's hard. It's really hard. It's a process that that goes slowly, but what it does is it takes away the power from the thought and leads to it decreasing in intensity and frequency. And and a really good way to do this is simply to label the thought and then do nothing else did I confess this before? Did I purposely not confess this? It might be the thought that pops into our mind. And instead of saying, I think I did confess this, or even if I forgot to, all of my sins were forgiven, et cetera, like those things we would tell ourselves. Instead, we just notice the thought and we say, that's scrupulosity. That's my religious OCD. And that's it, we leave it. The thought isn't good or bad. It's just a thought that we can label and leave aside. And perhaps as a priest, if you have a good relationship with the person you're with, you can help them to label the thought and leave it. But as mentioned, the best thing to do would be to help point people who are open to the idea in the direction of therapy to address the issue and hopefully find relief. God bless. A non-ordained anonymous is up next. What do you do when you have symptoms of moral OCD or scrupulosity while trying to date? How do you deal with the anxiety of your significant other not sharing your values and potentially leading you or your family, your future family, into sin? Bonus points if they're not Catholic, but you are. A lot of scrupulosity questions coming into the show lately, so let's pray for everyone battling these symptoms, trying to cope with the anxiety they bring, for peace, relief, and consolation through the intercession of Mary, our mother. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. It's worth taking a moment to point out that anxiety about what the future holds, especially when it comes to relationships, is normal. All of us are worried about what is going to happen in the future, and so, you know, it's worth cutting yourself some slack in that regard. The difficulty pops up when this anxiety starts to take over our lives, starts to become so intense that we don't know how to cope and we aren't able to take care of ourselves or our responsibilities in life because the intrusive thoughts about what the future might be are so intense. It's hard. But as previously mentioned, the best way to combat religious OCD or scrupulosity is not to fight back against the thoughts with reassurance, but to either A, consider the thought and allow the anxiety to rise and fall, like allowing yourself to imagine your future family being led into sin or being ripped away from the faith and just sitting with it, letting it cause you anxiety, but staying with the thought until the anxiety naturally falls. Or B, label the thoughts as they come. Like when the thought pops into your mind that causes you anxiety, instead of doing anything about it to help calm yourself, simply say, that's my scrupulosity. And just let it be without any other attention, labeling it each time it pops into your head. Like we mentioned, fighting back against intrusive thoughts usually tells your brain this thought needs to be battled by other thoughts. It deserves my attention and I have to address it. And that gives it power versus the other two options teaching your brain that you can move forward without having to fight the thoughts. They don't deserve your attention, and slowly but surely, they will decline in power and frequency. Know that we'll be praying for you. Erica wraps us up. I wanted to ask a question about how someone can get through Holy Week and specifically the triduum when it brings back traumatic memories of past abuse. It's hard because you feel like it's selfish to think about yourself when Jesus suffered so much to love you, but sometimes flashbacks make it impossible to get through Holy Thursday and Good Friday services. Please, please join me in praying for Erica and everyone who has experienced traumatic events in the past, especially when those events make it difficult to be close to God. Let's pray for healing, But in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for sending this in. This is such an important question that so many of us have to deal with, and it's it's hard because during Holy Week, there is such an emphasis on look at what Jesus went through for you. He suffered more than anyone ever has, and he did it for you, and the least you could do is show up for Mass on Holy Thursday and various other things like that. But Jesus wants you to experience peace, comfort, and relief from these traumatic memories, these flashbacks, and the other symptoms that you're living with. Not participating in Holy Week as a means of taking care of your mental health, especially since the days of Holy Week are not Holy Days of Obligation, may be the best approach to take care of yourself until you feel ready to return. It's probably a good idea to find a way to mark the time that doesn't involve going to church, getting into things that bring back the trauma, et cetera. It's really hard, and we're kind of wired to feel guilty about this. But God understands us better than we understand ourselves, and he is always willing to meet us where we're at. There's a loud chorus of voices in our lives, on social media, and even in our own hearts that shout at us and make us feel awful for not doing more, not pushing through difficulties to show up even when it hurts, and making us feel guilty whenever we come up short. But let me assure you, Those voices are not the voice of God. They are not the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ is meek, loving, understanding, compassionate, and welcoming. The voice of Christ knows our wounds, knows our pain, knows how much we wish we could give ourselves to him, and knows why we're unable to at various points along our journey. And he loves us. He cries with us, and he's willing to wait for us forever. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.